0: Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy.
1: And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash Locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today.
0: Warning. Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Check the Locks Podcast. I am John Connor.
0: And I'm Olivia Cornu.
1: So happy to be back with you guys for a brand new episode, another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we jump in, Olivia, how are you doing? How has your week been? How's everything going in your world?
0: I'm doing really good. You know, I've been off work for the last week. Jazz Fest is happening in New Orleans, so I've gone there a couple days. And I have found this new hobby of growing Monarch caterpillars or caterpillars that will turn into monarch butterflies. So it's actually given me a lot of peace this week. So I've had a pretty good week. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. And I have to tell you, I love getting text messages from you that are just pictures of caterpillars. And I show them to my wife. I'm like, look at this, look at this caterpillar. And yeah. we, we both thoroughly enjoy it. She was saying, she was like, I am so glad that that is a passion that she has that she is like comfortable sharing with you.
0: Yeah. It's my first time to do it. My mom did it last year and it's just really peaceful. It gives you something to look and check in on every day, every night. Right now I have one that I think might be dead. He didn't turn all the way, but um, we'll see what happens. I wrote on a Facebook group about it. So
1: (laughs) when you say it didn't turn all the way, it sounds like you're raising vampires. It's like he didn't turn.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's like half a chrysalis, half a caterpillar still just hanging there.
1: Well, that is awesome. Again, I I love getting those pictures from you and getting the updates. And it's a, a whole lot of fun. And Jazz Fest looks like it was a lot of fun, too. Again, we're kind of recording ahead of schedule. So that way we don't miss an episode. We can make sure that we've got plenty in the barrel for you guys. But yesterday was Cinco de Mayo. You got some Ziggy Marley action going. You sent me a video that looked like it was a ton of fun.
0: Oh, yeah. Ziggy was singing all of his dad's songs. So it was awesome. Everybody was there. There were kids with their parents listening. It was a good time the weather's been beautiful. So
1: it's been great. That's awesome. I am glad that everything's been going well. And hopefully for the people listening, you have had a wonderful week as well. And again, just so glad that you have decided to come back and join us. Been so amazed by the amount of support that we've been getting and the interaction in the Facebook group and on the socials. So thank you guys so much. Thank you for the support and thank you for being here. So we've got a brand new case for you this week. I had never heard about it before, but when I was doing my research on it, it was very intriguing, really stuck out. I think it's going to be very interesting to cover. I hope you guys will like it. So do you think we should just go ahead and jump into this week's episode?
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about it. I haven't heard of this one either. And another thing that I will say is I really appreciate people giving suggestions on Facebook and stuff because it makes you look into cases that you don't know about or haven't heard about. And so, you know, I'm starting to pick some of these. So we'll see what yours is all about.
1: And we will talk about that a little bit more at the end of the episode. But if you are not in the Facebook group, please take a minute, join us because we love interacting with you guys. We love hearing your suggestions. So we'd love to have you as part of the family. This week, we are talking about the murder of Christopher DeNoyer. So our story starts, it is January of 1998, and a young couple in Salinas, California, is spending the day updating their home. While in the crawlspace, installing new ductwork, the husband notices something eerie. He sees a shoe sticking straight up from the dirt. Now, the husband was a little too large to go further into the crawlspace and investigate, but it definitely freaked him out. He climbed out and told his wife all about it. So, Olivia, with you being a new homeowner, one thing I did want to ask you is... How would you feel in that situation or what would the thoughts be running through your head if you're like, I'm going to be doing some updates to my home, just doing some new duct work. You're down a crawl space and you find, you know, a shoe just sticking straight out of the ground. What's the first thing that would go through your head? I'm moving
0: out and never coming back. I wouldn't know where the crawl space is in my
1: house. (laughs) Now, I could uh, definitely relate with a husband being too large to go further into the crawl space. (laughs) I was like, that would be my problem is I (laughs) I would see it, but it would just stay there because I'm not going to try to get myself stuck. Right. So days later, after he had discussed it with his wife, apparently his wife had told her sister about it. And her sister was like, listen, it's probably just a shoe. It's probably been down there forever. I'll go down there and check it out. So she crawls into the crawl space, gets to the part where the shoe is sticking up from the ground and she's attempting to pull it out, but it will not budge. So she decided that she was going to dig around the area to see if she could get the shoe out. It's at this point that she made a shocking discovery. It was connected to what seemed to be human bone. Now, hoping it was some kind of a prank, the couple immediately called 911, and police arrived and cut a hole in the kitchen floor. I wanted to ask you this, Olivia. Have you ever seen those people that they will take like a plastic skeleton or something? Like, Let's say they're pouring a swimming pool or a patio they'll drop a plastic skeleton in that concrete to freak out whoever lives there after them. Have you ever seen anybody do that?
0: I have not, but that's kind of funny. It's a good little prank. I would freak out if it happened to me, but that's pretty clever.
1: I would poop my pants 110%. I know your mom's listening, so I want to watch my language, but I would poop (laughs) my pants.
0: Shout out mom.
1: Got to love the moms. Yeah. Tomorrow is mother's day. We're recording this before mother's day. So shout out to all the moms. So, The police arrived, they cut a hole in the kitchen floor, and investigators discovered that not only was the leg bone human, but that there was an entire skeletal body in the crawl space. To preserve the site and properly recover the skeletal remains, investigators called Dr. Allison Galloway. Galloway is a forensic anthropologist from the University of California, Santa Cruz. She immediately began working on excavating the body. To Galloway's surprise, the remains had been undisturbed by animals and seemed to be in pristine condition. Her initial examination determined that the bones were likely that of a male. Due to the fact that there was no odor or soft tissue remaining, the body had most likely been in that crawl space for a number of years. So, fun fact, according to Dr. Galloway, it can take roughly 5 to 50 years for soft tissue to decompose fully. So, there's an entire skeleton here. She knows it can take 5 to 50 years, so like this body has been down here for a crazy amount of time. There was also no disintegration to the bone, which meant that the remains were in a protected environment. While excavating the body, Galloway discovered decomposed jeans and underwear. This suggested that the body was fully clothed at the time of its burial. Galloway was then tasked with carefully sifting through the remains. While investigating, she discovered a thirty-eight caliber bullet. Police now believe that they had discovered a homicide victim. As they continued to sift through the crawlspace, they uncovered several other personal items, These included a set of keys and a cigarette lighter. The officer in charge of the scene, Sergeant Miller, spoke with a family who currently owned the home. The couple informed Sergeant Miller that they had purchased the home roughly two and a half years ago prior to the discovery, and they had not been in the crawl space before the incident. I don't know about you, but if I was living in a home for two years and then found out that I had been living with a dead body in the basement for two years... I would sell that house immediately or I would set that house on fire.
0: Same, same, same. And then I would be so scared that I would be under investigation also. I mean, we haven't made it that far, but still like, hey, how do they not know that you haven't been there for, you know, been under there for two and a half years?
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, they were probably able to tell because the. Because
0: of the body was decomposed.
1: Yeah, the signs definitely pointed to it being there for a great number of years. A longer time. Yeah. Yeah. So now investigators had the harrowing task of determining who the victim was, and without the victim's identity, the police would have no way to track his killer. So at this point, the remains were sent to the UC Santa Cruz Anthropology Lab. Dr. Galloway believes she may be able to provide important information that may help identify the victim. Measurements determined that the victim was an adolescent male who was roughly 5 foot 10 inches tall. Again, the bullet found indicated that the victim had been shot, but Dr. Galloway still had to verify the cause of death. She began to investigate the bones for any irregularities and discovered two gunshot holes in the victim's skull. Galloway also determined that the victim had suffered up to two gunshot wounds to the body. This was determined by finding broken ribs while investigating the remains.
0: I have a question. Yeah. So this house, the couple bought it two and a half years prior. So I just wonder if this house was a vacant house prior because you would think that when a body is being decomposed, the smell is awful. So someone would have had to have smelled it. Like, I wonder if this house is rural or, you know, more details about that.
1: Yeah, so definitely not a rural home. It's in a neighborhood. in.
0: Oh, it's in Salinas, California.
1: Yeah, so it's, an, it's not like a, like a farmhouse or anything like that. And we'll actually touch on that aspect a little bit okay. further on because I was thinking the same thing. An entire body down in a crawl space, that would be a lot of smell. And it it feels like it would be hard to ignore.
0: Yeah, our houses here in New Orleans are raised. So if something died under one of our houses, you would be able to smell it.
1: Yeah, it would definitely be a strong stink. That's for sure. So at this point, Galloway immediately reported her findings back to Sergeant Miller. In hopes of identifying the victim, he cross-references the address where the remains were found with missing persons reports dating back at least five years prior. To his surprise, Sergeant Miller discovers a potential match. A teenage boy named Christopher DeNoyer was reported missing from the same address in 1984. Sergeant Miller pulled the missing person's report for Christopher and discovered there was a picture on file. This photo was consistent with Dr. Galloway's findings. So he pulled the photo. Adolescent kid, teenage boy, roughly 5 foot, 10 inches tall, seemed to match with what she found in the lab.
0: So far, this sounds really easy, but I'm sure there's a big twist to it coming.
1: It definitely gets interesting. So Christopher had been reported missing by his mother in 1984. Investigators secured Christopher's dental records. Dr. Kevin Landon performed an analysis by comparing the x-rays from Christopher's file to slides of the victim's dental remains. While comparing the two, Dr. Landon found that there was a retainer in the lower jaw extending from his left to right canine tooth with an orthodontic band around it. This type of retainer was standard in 1984. And what I learned in my research is that now those retainers are actually set in the back of your teeth, but at the time they'd be connected from your left to right canine tooth. And there was a band that would be connected behind the teeth that would help straighten the teeth out. So it was very consistent with The procedure and the style of retainer that they had in in 84.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, so based on the type of retainer and then matching the dental records together, Landon concluded that the dental records and the remains were a positive match. The remains were confirmed to be that of Christopher Denoyer. Now the detectives needed to find out who could have murdered Christopher, but after 14 years and with little evidence, would it even be possible?
0: I am just wondering, when the mom reported a missing persons in 1984, and he was found in the crawlspace of his own home, why wasn't there more of an investigation? And you may get to that.
1: These are great questions, because these are the questions as I was going through, I was like, okay, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But as we Mm kind of go through, I think you're going to be like, oh, okay, I get it. I get it, yeah. So Christopher Denoyer was born on December 26, 1967 to Mike Denoyer and his wife, Dale Denoyer. In 1984, Christopher was a 16-year-old kid living at home. His parents had divorced, and his mother, Dale, had remarried to Jackson Villarda. Jackson and Dale shared their home with five children, two of whom were from Dale's previous marriage. Now, Chris was a normal teenager. He was a liked member of the football team, and he had a steady girlfriend named Carlotta. On January 13th, 1984, Dale decided to go on a day trip. She left her husband at home with the children, and everything seemed fine until Christopher didn't return home that evening. Later on that night, Carlotta arrived at the family home. Christopher was supposed to meet her, but he never showed up. Christopher's mother called his best friend, Robert Pruitt, hoping that her son was with him. Robert told Christopher's mother that he hadn't seen him, but he also shared some news that was concerning to Dale. Robert shared that Christopher had talked about running away. According to Pruitt, Christopher couldn't stand the rules at home. When he received the call, Pruitt thought to himself, wow, Christopher finally made the decision to up and leave. Dale continued to reach out to friends and relatives, but no one, not even Christopher's father, had seen or heard from him. Now, at this point, Dale was understandably distraught and reported Christopher missing. Later that week, a telegram was received. It was addressed to Dale and signed in Christopher's name. The telegram seemed to explain Christopher's mysterious disappearance. The telegram stated that Christopher was running away from home to live in Los Angeles. It also said not to worry about him, and he would see everyone once again once he was recruited by the NFL. What's a telegram? What's a telegram?
0: I mean, I know what a telegram is, but like in the 80s, how would I go send a telegram?
1: So a telegram, you could call a number and basically read a message. So you could be like, dear Olivia, stop. And then it would start a new line this is John running late to our podcast. Stop. I will see you at 645. Stop. Sincerely. Stop. John's, you know, whatever. And then.
0: So it comes in the mail or it comes over the. Comes phone. in the
1: mail, but you could call them in. Yeah. And the,
0: someone would scribe it.
1: Essentially like calling, leaving a text message. And then somebody would like write that message out and then send and it then to And then mail it to you. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: I was born in 89. Okay. Forgive me. You weren't sending telegrams.
1: I was born in 85. They were probably sending telegrams in 89, but, you know. We just didn't do them. Yeah, you weren't. Or I I don't know if my mom ever sent one or anything like that. It's a, you know what I mean? But now you would think that a telegram from Christopher would answer any questions that the family may have had about his disappearance. However, in reading an article posted to Oxygen.com, I found that Christopher's family was not entirely convinced. Christopher's sister read us the telegram and we looked at each other and said, No, no, that's not Chris. Christopher's stepmother, Velma McGraw, told Oxygen. He wasn't interested in being a professional football player. Now, other things in the telegram also raised concern for the family. In the telegram, Christopher apologized for being, quote, very rude. And it also said Jackson was right. While many in Christopher's family didn't believe that the telegram was authentic, it was enough for the police to drop the investigation and declare Christopher a runaway. So to answer your question from earlier.
0: That's why they didn't investigate more.
1: Right. To the police, they were like, listen, he's living at home. Mom, dad, five kids. It states very clearly that he ran away, opened and shut case. Not going to put a bunch of resources into this to find this kid that, you know, is very obviously took off. Right. However, Christopher's mother was very determined to find him. She covered the neighborhood missing child posters and flyers. Eventually, the family moved away from the area, and more than a decade passed with no answers. But everything would change more than a decade later. Police now need to reconstruct the events that led to Christopher's death. They first check to see if there is access to the crawl space from the outside of the home, and they find that there is only one way in and one way out. Now, because of this, investigators determined that this was either a stranger or someone who lived in the home. Detectives believe a stranger committing the crime is unlikely because this theory would plause that a stranger, number one, broke into the home, then killed Christopher, then buried him in the crawl space and escaped before anyone came home. You'd have to be pretty lucky to get away with that in a short amount of time.
0: Yeah. And I'm going back to the end of the telegram that says that Jackson was right. Okay, Jackson, the stepdad was right about what?
1: Yeah, and we're going to get into that a little bit, too, because that definitely stuck out to the family. So because of the fact that there was only one way in and one way out of the crawl space and that a stranger doing this seemed highly unlikely, police determined that whoever did this would have had access and control of the home in January of 1984. Sergeant Miller wanted to be sure that Christopher hadn't been murdered after he went missing. Miller again reached out to Dr. Kevin Landon. Sergeant Miller asked Dr. Landon if it would be possible to run away, return, and be murdered and buried under the house at a later date. Dr. Landon informed Sergeant Miller that this would, in fact, be impossible due to the fact that the wisdom teeth had not developed any further. This proved that Christopher was murdered before he was reported missing.
0: I find that dental records help solve a lot of cases. Like, you don't realize how important that is.
1: Well, yeah, and it's interesting because you know, every person's mouth is unique, like a fingerprint. You know what I mean? Like, you know, chips and the way that your your teeth kind of sit. Like I know I have one that kind of sits on top of another. So heaven forbid anything happened to me. You know, if they had my dental records, they would be able to, to tell very easily, like, oh yeah, this is the same chompers on, on this dude. So at this point, investigators learned about Carlotta, Christopher's girlfriend at the time of the disappearance. Police hope that she may be able to provide some insight into the family dynamics at that time. Carlotta was shaken by hearing the news of Christopher's death. She informed police that she had first met Christopher DeNoyer in 1983, and they dated until his disappearance in 1984. Carlotta described Christopher as her first love. Police asked Carlotta about his relationship with his mother and stepfather. Carlotta informed detectives that Christopher and his stepfather, Jackson Villarda, would fight constantly. According to Carlotta, Velarda was always on Christopher about something. It could be very strict. Carlotta told detectives that she never believed that Christopher ran away. She felt that he wouldn't have left without saying goodbye. And to me, that made a lot of sense as to why she would feel that way. I don't know if you had a boyfriend at 16. I know I had the same girlfriend all through high school, but at 16, I was like, I'm going to marry this person. This is the person I'm going to, this is the deepest love that anyone has ever felt for anyone else.
0: Oh yeah. I was the same way. And at that age, when you're that age, you say a lot of things that you wouldn't normally say. Like you're going to spill the beans about how the family was, what their family dynamic was, how your relationship was. Cause you don't know to keep things under wraps as much, but yeah, I mean, I had a boyfriend all like high school into college. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that.
1: <laughs> you want to have him out as a guest? We should do an episode with like high school. That'd be fun. Oh. Uh, but
0: shout out. You right. know who you
1: are. Right. At that age, if I was going to run away, the first thing I would have done is. Was told my boyfriend. Or asked if they want to go with me.
0: Right. Know. Yeah. Like, let's be rebellious teenagers. Let's go. Let's run away. We can go to Vegas. Get
1: right.
0: married. Just kidding.
1: <laughs> is that what you did? Am I uncovering a story? I was Olivia Johnson for about eight months.
0: No, no, no. <laughs> I've only been
1: married once. Alrighty. So detectives then interviewed Christopher's sister. She described the home as chaotic. According to his sister, Christopher and his stepfather did not get along. Again, the was very strict and Christopher did not look at him like a father. When detectives asked Christopher's sister about ever smelling a foul stench in the home, Christopher's sister stated that she remembered her parents saying that it must have been a pet snake. They had that died somewhere on the property.
0: So did the snake just go missing or did the
1: snake really die? I have no idea, but to me, I was like. You would know if your snake was missing, right? Right. And that kind of smell.
0: is not That's not a dead snake.
1: Unless you have like an anaconda from the movie Anaconda. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, not going
0: to make that kind of smell. Like a little mouse might smell in one little corner, but a dead body will probably smell the entire house, I would imagine.
1: Yeah. Now, the other thing is to you is. They didn't specify the age of the sister.
0: Right. She could have been like five, six, seven, eight.
1: If he was the oldest and the other kids were very young, they might not even have any vivid memories of the, the smell or anything of that nature. Right. At this point, investigators decide that it's time to speak with Christopher's mother, Dale Villarta. Dale was shocked by the news that Christopher's body had been found. Going back to the day of Christopher's disappearance, Dale shared that her husband, Jackson Villarta, had called telling her that Christopher was missing. After sharing the news with Dale, investigators asked if anyone in the home owned a gun. Dale shared that Jackson owned a gun for home protection, but wasn't sure what type or caliber. Investigators did not suspect Christopher's mother. At the time of the murder, Dale was pregnant, and dragging a body into a crawl space and digging a six-foot trench didn't seem like something that she would have been able to do. I also thought this was unkind, but the detective, Sergeant Miller, actually described her as a heavyset woman. So he said she was pregnant, but she was heavy set anyway and moving the body didn't seem something that would have been likely. And I was like, dude, you could have just said that she was pregnant. You didn't have to get like the Let's extra say, dig in there. That's a little Yeah.
0: The poor woman's already mourning the loss of her child. Now you're like, Oh, she's heavy set and she's pregnant.
1: Right. She couldn't have done it. I was like, mm, shots fired. You didn't have to go so <laughs> personal, but
0: my best Stephanie Tanner, how, how rude, rude.
1: <laughs> but investigators did have a suspect in mind. Christopher's stepfather, Jackson Velarda. Velarda was working for the telephone company at the time, and detectives located him on his route. When investigators come face-to-face with Velarda, they believe he has the right size and build to be able to drag a body and dig a six-foot trench in a crawl space.
0: Let me tell you, I'm five foot three. I'm not going to say how much I weigh, but I've been digging with a shovel in my backyard, building a garden. It's hard work, but if I had to do something... I can do, you can do anything you put your mind to. Don't tell me I can't do it because it's just going to make me want to do it even more. Anybody's capable of anything. doesn't matter how big you are, right?
1: So what I'm hearing you say is if I have to get rid of a body, damn it, I'm getting rid of that body. It's mind <laughs> over matter.
0: <laughs> I mean, you would have to try. Well, really? I'm not saying that's, yeah, like he's just the right size and the right built and he's a man. Well, I'm a woman and I'm the short stature and I could do whatever I needed to do.
1: That's right. We don't need gender bias when it comes to digging a ditch. And I've got another story that I want to do maybe for my for my next episode that I think will definitely prove your point to that as well. But I think that's a very good call just being like he's a man of a certain size, certain stature. He's probably able it. to do it. Right. Yeah, that's right. Let's get gender bias out of policing, please.
0: It's like all the white males driving white trucks in Baton Rouge. Right. It's every man in Louisiana.
1: Right. Now, what's interesting is that Velarda agrees to come in for questioning without a problem. He was cooperative and admitted that he and Christopher had their troubles, but Velarda described it as normal issues as teenagers often have trouble adjusting to step parents. Recalling his whereabouts, Velarda claimed that he had worked from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. on the day of Christopher's disappearance. He also told detectives that he didn't know Christopher was missing until his wife told him after arriving home from work. His story contradicts the information provided to detectives by Christopher's mother, Dale. Jackson told detectives that a few days later, they received a telegram stating that Christopher had moved out and that he was sorry for the trouble that he caused. Villarda also disclosed that he did own two guns, a twenty-two caliber rifle and a thirty-eight caliber handgun.
0: Handgun.
1: This is the exact caliber of the handgun. Of the bullet. Yes. So this is the caliber of bullet that they found. And because of this, it raised suspicion with detectives and they wanted to obtain a search warrant to examine the handgun.
0: Now all we have to do is do ballistics.
1: We're going to get to that. I learned a lot about ballistics in this. So police then went to Velarda's home and prevented him from entering and removing the handgun. After obtaining a warrant, investigators searched Velarda's residence and they collected the firearm and ammunition. While waiting for ballistics testing, detectives began to fact check Velarda's story. Detectives secured all of his personal records for January of 1984, and one small detail stood out to detectives. The telegram that was supposedly sent by Christopher was ordered from and billed to Velarda's home phone. Christopher had already been murdered, and detectives now knew that Velarda had written it. The sentence, Jackson was right, was a dead giveaway to investigators.
0: Ding, ding, ding. That's what I said.
1: You could have solved this. If you were Mm -hmm. in the Salinas, California police, you would have been like, I know what's up.
0: Yep, I wasn't even born yet, but I would have
1: solved it. (laughs) Detectives believe that they now have mounting evidence against Velarda, but they would need ballistics evidence to make an arrest. Scott Armstrong, senior criminalist with the California State Department of Justice, examined the handgun. Armstrong ran several tests, including firing the weapon into a water tank and collected the spent bullets. Now, according to Armstrong, a gun, whether a handgun or a revolver, will have two types of markings that they impress on a bullet. These are called class characteristics and individual characteristics. Class characteristics would be common to all guns of that make and model, while individual characteristics are unique markings called lands and grooves. These are left on a bullet as it travels through the gun barrel. Now, what's interesting about this is that they are as unique and individual as a fingerprint. This means that you could examine 30 bullets fired from the same gun and all would have the same markings or individual characteristics. I did not know that. I knew that there would be marks left and stuff like that, but, and I knew about ballistics testing, but this was very interesting to go into and kind of learn about the differences and learn exactly what they look for. I thought it was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I feel like when they get into ballistics, it pretty much is a dead giveaway for the most part. I mean, there's been a couple of cases where I've watched on TV where they're like, oh, well, it didn't quite fire right. Something wasn't right. But I think for the most part, once ballistics gets involved, that it's pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah, and Armstrong actually used a comparison microscope to compare the bullet from the crime scene and the round that he fired from the gun in his test slide side by side. Both class characteristics and individual characteristics match perfectly. Falarda's thirty-eight caliber handgun was the murder weapon.
0: Why would the stepdad want to kill his stepson?
1: What's interesting is they now have enough evidence to arrest him. On February 6th, 1999, Jackson Villarda was arrested for the murders of Christopher DeNoyer 15 years prior. Villarda adamantly denies the charges. So
0: I have a question. Is Jackson still married to Dale at this point?
1: What I was reading in the way that it read, I think they may have been estranged at that point.
0: I mean, it sounds like they argued a lot. Can't imagine they lasted 15 more years.
1: Yeah, and she was still going by his last name. So I I didn't find anything that said definitively yes or no, but it seemed like... They may have been together, but the relationship was strained. Okay. Jackson Velardo was charged with the murder of Christopher Neuer and stood trial in May of 2000. At the trial, the prosecution theorized that Christopher and his stepfather had gotten into an argument while the other children were away from the home. Velardo was much smaller in stature than Christopher, and he most likely wouldn't have been able to win in a hand-to-hand altercation. Prosecutors suggested that Velardo retrieved his handgun and shot the teen without warning. According to the prosecution's theory... He then dragged the body into the crawl space and cleaned up the mess. They believe he then sent the telegram and later buried the body. Prosecutors also played a video demonstrating the fact that someone of Velarda's size could very easily dig a shallow grave in a crawl space. Despite a seemingly solid case, The case actually ended in a mistrial after one member of the jury refused to find Velarda guilty. So for a second, it looked like he may not be held accountable for this. Now, more than six months later, a second trial began. This time, a jury found Velarda guilty and sentenced him to 17 years to life in prison. Velarda has since been up for parole three times since his conviction, and each request has been denied with the latest as of August of 2021. So he is still in prison. So that's the case. I wanted to pick your brain. What did you think about this one?
0: I think it's a great one. I think that in the beginning, when the detectives just wrote it off as a runaway, I'm like, the first thing that stuck out was this telegram. Jackson was right. What does that mean? Talk to Jackson. Talk to the stepdad. Figure out what that means why would christopher say that so i think them just writing it off and just saying oh he's a runaway teen that kind of frustrates me a little bit and then i just really wanted to know why he would have killed his stepson i have a split family and i grew up with a stepmom and a stepdad and my mom and my stepdad are still married 22 years and so you know that's that's someone that i look to as a as a parent like he is a dad to me and so I don't understand what is so bad in those teenage years. Yeah, I'm a girl and obviously my stepdad is a male, but like, I remember getting punished by my mother for things that I would say and back talking to my stepdad. And yeah, you go through these teenage hormones and changes and everything. And, you know, your parents are the worst people in the world, but like nothing to like murder me over, you know? So I just wonder like how bad that household actually was. And I'd be interested to hear how old the other siblings were, what their thoughts were, what their relationships were with Jackson. I have a lot of questions about this one.
1: I have to say, I, I agree with you on a lot of this. My parents got divorced when I was about fifteen. My dad remarried. My mom's never been remarried, but you know, I have a stepmom. I, I have some step siblings and stuff like that. And I could definitely take my stepmom in a fight. I would mess her up if we ever. Well, had I think to do you're that. <laughs> the right
0: size to bury a small grave.
1: Yeah, I'm the right size and build to fight someone's stepmom. <laughs> but, um, no, but yeah, it just seems like. I don't know, maybe things were different in 1984. Maybe, you know, a telegram at that point was, look, man, he obviously ran away. He's telling you that he ran away. And if they can't find any evidence to the contrary, I mean, you would think that if he shot him in the home, there would have been blood. There would have been.
0: Yeah. Like, where did this all take place? Was he shot somewhere else? You know, I'm just, I'm interested in
1: this. It seems like it would have had to been in the home because he couldn't have been able to get him into the crawl space from the outside and also. If you shot someone, like, in the driveway or in the grass, like...
0: And where were the four other children? They had to have been small, suggesting that the one was like, oh, yeah, our pet snake died. That's what the smell was. But where was Dale? Dale's pregnant, apparently, at this time, right?
1: Yeah, she was out of the house on a day trip.
0: Yeah, but she should have come back. Aren't pregnant women? I mean, I've never been pregnant, but your wife... Whenever, <laughs> whenever she was pregnant, I hear that, like, your senses, like, your sense of smell is so heightened. How would Dale have not been able to be like, something's not right? Jackson, you need to go under the house and figure out what is that smell.
1: No? I also, though, wonder, like, I've never lived with a dead body in the home. I don't know how long it takes for, like, that smell to start. Like, have you
0: ever had, like, a squirrel in the attic or something?
1: I currently have squirrels in my attic now, and they annoy the fuck out of me. <laughs>
0: When one dies, it's gonna smell really bad.
1: Well, they have a way in and a way out, so <laughs> like hopefully no one dies in there. But I can hear them; they are right above my where I work in my day job, and they're just running up and down. There's let's save that for another day because I, if I catch them, I'm gonna choke them to death. But
0: <laughs> it can be our next case: yep. the squirrels against John.
1: Yeah, the squirrel strangler. <laughs> But, you know, I also don't know, like, how long it takes that smell to start or, like, if he buried him immediately, if that would take longer. He was completely buried. Right, so,
0: and it was a small, shallow grave. So, yeah, maybe that that's true.
1: I do know you are right. My wife was pregnant with our daughter. My wife has got a hound dog's nose anyway, and it was super amplified when she was pregnant. So, But, yeah, there's just a lot of unanswered questions, and unfortunately, Jackson Velarda isn't claiming responsibility for it. And so it's one of those things that, you know, I don't know if we'll ever know, but.
0: That's what you find when you're doing some of these cases. Oh, you think it's like such a good murder. And then you go and you're reading through them and you're like, man, I still have so many unanswered questions. And that's what I have found about a lot of cases. It's like, I just need to know more. I need to know more and more and know the details.
1: It's strange because the other thing that I was thinking about is the closure that the mother must have gotten and the family must have gotten, you know, for people who, even Carlotta, and the teenage girlfriend, because I can imagine.
0: She was wondering, like, what did I do wrong when you're 16? What did I do wrong? Why did he leave me? Was I not good enough? And that's your like developmental time of becoming a woman and who you are and all the things. And a lot of stuff messes with you psychologically at that time. So I can only imagine what she went through feeling like he just left. He we just went to try to blame the NFL right. or whatever. He just left me high and dry.
1: Yeah, or growing up, again, in that developmental age and feeling like in your gut, that that's not actually what happened, but you have no way to prove it. The police have already determined like, hey, this is exactly what's going on. So I can imagine that was-
0: And then just trusting, trusting your mom brings in this man and you are supposed to respect him as a father figure and then just not having that trust. And then you wake up one day and find out that, oh, this man who's been living in my house, being my dad, has now killed my brother. Like, am I next? Is he going to kill me next? Like just the uneasiness of it. And then being Dale, like- I trusted this man with my family and he killed my son.
1: Right. Or the question of like being one of the kids and being like, Oh, well I'm glad it wasn't me who got into an argument that day or, or,
0: Yeah. Or why was it not me? Why did he choose to kill Christopher? Why didn't he kill me instead? You know, just so many unanswered questions. It was a good case, though. I liked it.
1: Yeah. You know, I did want to ask you when we talk about the uh, the deadbolt scale, our deadbolt scale is a scale of one to 10 as to, you know, whether or not this story would have us up in the middle of the night checking the locks, you know, would be able to sleep like a baby afterward. So on the deadbolt scale, I wanted to ask you, where do you think this one falls?
0: That's a good question. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, I can put myself in Christopher's shoes. I have a stepfather. My parents, like I said, have been married 22 years. And I just can't imagine that my stepdad would ever murder me. <laughs> But it is very unsettling. It's unsettling as a mom, as a sibling of Christopher. You know, i would I would give it about a seven. I can't really put myself in the shoes this way because I think me and my stepdad have mad love and respect for each other. But, man, it's scary. like who who would have known when I was young and he came into my life, you would never know. You know, I just knew that when I made him mad, i I did something bad. If I made my stepdad mad, I knew that I did something really bad. Usually, my mom was the punisher. And my stepdad just kind of stayed quiet. But if I made him mad and it was obvious that I made him mad, I know that I did something wrong. And so that almost ate me more alive than if my mom was mad at me. But yeah, I, I would say a seven.
1: So he was even keeled, like kind of hard to get him angry. But when you got him to that point, you were like, oh, no, I know I I, know I did I I did up.
0: something wrong. Yeah, I did something wrong.
1: Yeah, my mom's like that. Like my mom is very like, you know, you can kind of pick at or poke at, you know, make fun stuff like that. And she can. She can take a joke. She's good people, but she gets to a certain point where she's like, I'm done. And you're like, okay, let me, let me, let's not poke the bear anymore. I'm going to back off a little bit. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. So I say a seven, what do you think about this case, John? How did it make you feel? You did all the research and, you know, listening to it and writing it up.
1: Yeah. So for me, I'm not going to go as high as a seven. I think this is going to be for me, probably about a four, And the reason I'm giving, I just never, I'm sorry. No, go
0: ahead. I I never know. I never want to score them low. So I always just score them like five.
1: (laughs) No, that's all right. It's after hearing it, it's like how you want to score it in the moment. And I think that's another thing too, is that, you know, the way that we look at things and our perspectives and having different life experiences are going to cause us to scale them differently. And I think that's, that's part of the fun. But for me, the reason that I give this a four is because I think it speaks to exactly what you were talking about where when you bring someone into your life like that, they can present themselves as one way. But there are so many stories out there about someone bringing someone into their home and then that person becomes a monster or not even becomes a monster but has been a monster and they've just been able to conceal it and and hide that from you. And then once they're in like a cancer, they show who they really are and what they're actually capable of.
0: And sometimes it's too late in the case of Christopher, it's too late, probably for Dale to get this person out of her life. And, you know, she lost a son because of it. And it's really sad, devastating.
1: I think for me, it's a, a factor. If it was one or the other of these two things, I don't think I would give it a four, but it's paired with that. There can be a monster in your life and you don't know it for so long. And then to be a mother or even, you know, Christopher's father, I couldn't find a lot of information from his perspective, but being a mother or father and having that gut feeling that my child didn't actually run away. And then you have to live with that for over a decade before you get closure. Right. I think, it's like,
0: where is he? Is he around? And then you double take people at the grocery store or, you know, oh, I, that looked like Christopher walking down the street. I wonder if it was him. Like, what did I do as a parent that was so bad that my kid ran away? And then to find out 10 years later, a lot happens in 10 years that he was murdered by someone who was living in your home.
1: I agree with you, and I think it is terrifying in a couple of different, like, there's layers to it. You know what I mean? And I think that's what makes it interesting, is that this wasn't just a straight-up, like, a serial killer, but this is somebody did something. I'm sure Jackson Velarda was like, for 15 years, was like, I got away with this. You know what I mean? And nobody's ever asked a single question, and... I think ultimately his pride got him caught. See, Jackson was right. He had an attitude and like having to prove that he was right or put that line in a telegram to be self-aggrandizing. I think that is ultimately what led to people figuring out what really happened, which I think is also interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, that is this week's case. And thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. I feel like we should read a five-star review. What do you think, Olivia?
0: I love the five star reviews. They're the best part about doing the podcast.
1: I know it's my favorite. I love hearing what people have to say
0: We really do appreciate them
1: Oh my God more than you know and it's so much fun to see what people are thinking and and if you are someone who has gone online and you've left us a review whether we've read it or not thank you so much doing those reviews, sharing the episodes with your friends, letting people know about what's going on with the show is the best way to help us grow so greatly appreciate that And this week, we have a five star review from The Bee's Knees 0619. The Bee's Knees says, I'm only about halfway through the first episode, and I knew I'd be a fan when the words he super Saiyan punched him were said. I love it. LOL. So the Bees Knees 0619, you have won a sticker, a magnet. We got some some cool swag for you. Uh, if you are in the Facebook group, which I think you might be, if you're in the Facebook group, go ahead and send us a message. You can also send us an email. Head over to checkthelockspod.com, Click that contact button, send an email reach out to us, let us know where to send it. We've got some swag coming your way. And Olivia, if someone wants to have their review read on the podcast, what do they need to do?
0: You need to get onto Apple podcasts and leave us a five-star review and write us a review. Give us a comment, a shout out, let us know what you think. We love hearing from y'all. We love your feedback. We love the comments. We love everything about it. It's what makes us happy and keeps us doing what we're doing. So leave us a review on Apple podcast and hopefully you'll be the next one we read on our episodes.
1: That's right. And again, the Bees Knees 0619. Please make sure you reach out to us. We would love to send you some cool stuff. And also, guys, we are on the socials. So we are on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We're on Twitter at Check the Locks. We also have an amazing Facebook group. It's the Check the Locks Podcast Facebook group. Please find us on there. Join So thankful. We're up to almost 200 members now, and the people in this group have been so supportive. They've been talking about the show. If you guys listened to episode number one today, I just went in. I was able to find the demo tapes from our first episode killer, Paul Dennis Reed. So if you're interested in what terrible garbage that sounds like, you can check it out on the Facebook page. Uh, But we want to interact with you. We want to build a family, to build a community, and the best way to do that is to hang out with us in the Facebook group and that is it for episode number five of the check the Locks podcast again I am John Connor
0: I'm Olivia Cornu
1: and don't forget to
0: check the locks
1: we'll see you guys next week
0: have a good one